We're just coming off of a weekend full of prayer. We had 48 hours of prayer. About a third of this church actually came out, over 110 people. And we had at least one person here for uh, the 48 consecutive hours. And it's not just an event. It's something that, uh, with a prayer request that we have from our children to our students to a number of different areas, it's actually a prayer request that we'll carry on during the year as well. But for us to begin 2016 with prayer is so important. And uh, it's a foundation for who we are. It reminds me of a a quote from Oswald Chambers uh, where he says that oftentimes we think that that prayer is for the greater work. And he says prayer is the greater work. I totally agree with him. So this morning we begin, or not begin, we continue our series in the book of Genesis as we uh, are learning more and more about who God is and his relationship with humanity and we come to uh, this is a, a very interesting story uh, in Genesis chapter 22. But before we get there, I want to ask the question, has anybody ever asked you an un- unreasonable request? Has anybody, anybody asked you an unreasonable request? Maybe if you're a student, maybe it was your mom saying, you got to brush your teeth this morning. But you ever been asked an unreasonable request? Uh, Forbes magazine published the top ten uh, stories, true and real stories of unreasonable requests by bosses. Here's just a sample of them. One ba- boss asked an employee on company time to help her plan her wedding. Another boss asked an employee to go online and post false good comments about him. That's what I tell my staff, too. Uh, another boss asked an employee to come up with a science fair project and make it for her daughter. Another boss asked an employee to fire the boss's brother. (laughs) And another boss asked an employee to lend him 400 bucks for a down payment for a car. So unreasonable requests. And we come to this story in Genesis chapter 22 where the faith of Abraham is tested because God comes to him and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. And I've entitled this an unreasonable request because from our own human comprehension, it seems so unreasonable. It just seems so out there that God would do something like that. So if you have have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 22 as we continue our sermon series in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the slides that we have. Well, we pick it up in chapter 22, and before chapter 22, in chapter 21, this long-awaited promise of God that Abraham and Sarah would have a son, Isaac, is born. And they had waited for over 20-some years for this promise. They waited and waited, and finally they had their son. And imagine the emotion, the excitement for Ab and Sarah to have their son Isaac. And we pick it up in chapter 22, starting with verse 1. Before I, I read, let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we thank you for this word, and I pray that you would take this word and multiply it in our lives. God, that you would speak into uh, where we find ourselves today. And that as we come across the story, that there would be one piece, one aspect, one theme, perhaps, one word that we would uh, be able to carry out into our lives. And for those of us here this morning, that we find ourselves in a very tough spot, uh, maybe in a, in, a, in a spot where we really can't go anywhere or do anything. And all we can do is just kind of sit. And as we do that, may we worship you and give honor to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, everybody said, Amen. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, that's a key phrase, I just want to highlight, scholars believe this is probably 20 years later, 
So Isaac is probably 20-something. Oftentimes, the Sunday school lesson of Abraham and, and, and Isaac is where Isaac is a little boy. Not true. He's probably in his 20s, we believe. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. So right away, the reader is given kind of the inside scoop. We're off the hook. We, we kind of know this is a test, that it's going to be favorable for Abraham, but Abraham doesn't know this. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yet Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. An unreasonable request. I think all of us would agree. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. And he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set up for the place God had told him about On the third day of the journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of of his son. Now, sometimes when we read this story, and I think traditionally read this story, we kind of gloss over it. And it's so matter-of-fact, isn't it? There's very little dialogue. There's just a lot of actions that we read about in terms of Abraham. And there's not much emotion. I mean, you compare this to some of the stories that we've read so far in Genesis, and this story is devoid of emotion. It just seems very straightforward, very matter-of-fact. It's almost like a recipe. It's kind of like a recipe I came across recently for uh, glazed meatloaf. And here's the recipe. It says this. Preheat oven to 350 degrees. In a small bowl, combine ketchup, brown sugar, one tablespoon lemon juice, and dry mustard until smooth. In a large bowl, combine ground beef, shredded bread, onion, egg, bouillon, three tablespoons lemon juice, a third cup of the ketchup mixture until well mixed. Form into a loaf and place in a nine and a half, nine and nine by five inch loaf pan, Bake one hour, pour off fat, pour reserved ketchup mixture over a loaf, bake 10 minutes more. And we read this story in Genesis chapter 22, I think in a, in a similar way. I remember hearing this story as a young kid in Sunday school, and it was just sort of like, Abraham, what faith. Wow, what courage. And we kind of gloss over what really is happening beneath the surface. And God calls Abraham to do the unthinkable. So we read that that Abraham promptly wakes up in the morning after hearing this unreasonable request by God that goes beyond human comprehension, packs his donkey, maybe he kisses Sarah goodbye, doesn't say that, but perhaps we can assume that. He brings Isaac and two attendants and heads out, and after two nights of camping, 
you know, over campfire, baked beans, singing songs, perhaps. Abraham and Isaac go up to the mountain where Abraham puts Isaac on the wood, brandishes a knife, and within a second of killing him, an angel yells from heaven for him to stop. And God provides a ram for the sacrifice. It just reads so sort of perfunctory. Like there's no emotion. Preheat oven to 350 degrees. Put in a 9 by 5 inch loaf pan. This morning, I want to dig beneath the story. I want us to really... Uh, sit in the emotion because I think there's a lot of emotion in terms of how the writer writes the story. He does it in a certain way where we feel and sense the anguish of a father who is about to kill his son. Okay? And the fill in the blanks that you have in your teaching notes, if you want to fill in um, the, the uh, blanks and follow along, because Abraham has emotion. It's not perfunctory. We know that he's feeling something, even though the text never says that, because up until this point, everything about Abraham that we know says this is a man of emotion. He shows emotion, for example, for Sodom and Gomorrah and later Ishmael. Okay? Sodom and Gomorrah, he bargains with God. He has the gall to uh, kind of stand on the tippy toes. That's a word picture that we talked about. And bargain with God to save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then later on, he's distraught when Ishmael, the, the son that's really not his real son, is sent away. So when we come to this text and we read about Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and there's really no emotion in the text, there has to be. He loves his one and only son. It's kind of like when we read this text, and if we think for a moment there's no emotion, that there's no concern, that there's no care, that, that Abraham is just simply listening to God and hear the commandment, the command, and then simply goes out to sacrifice the son. That the, like there's no anguish, that there's no heart-wrenching feeling on the behalf of Abraham. You have to be kidding me. It's just like a segment on ESPN during the f- uh, football season. Come on, man. Come on. Are you telling me there's no feeling for a father that he's about to sacrifice his one and only son? They had waited for over 20-some years. 20-some years, then they finally have their son. And then even 20 years later, we find him in 22 with, with his son Isaac. Are you telling me there's no emotion? There's no anguish? Can you imagine such an unreasonable request? And that's exactly what he's experiencing. It's like some friends of mine who went through years of infertility, very much like Abraham and Sarah did, where they uh, were hoping and waiting to have a child. And it took several years. It was so heart-wrenching. But when they had their son, they only had one kid, when they had their son, I would spend time with them. And it was very obvious that they cherished their son so much. The way they talked to him, the way they held him, the way they just looked at him, they cherished him. You could just see it. And I think in a, same, in a similar way, this is Abraham and Sarah's only son. And after years of infertility and not having a son, they finally have their one and only son. And deep down, their love, their emotion for their son is there. And I'm sure when Abraham hears this request from God, it's like, are you kidding me? This is hard, but he goes about it because Abraham's a man of faith. That's one thing that we know about him. But I want you to stop for imagining and, and, and put yourself in, in Abraham's sandals. Can you fathom this request by God to sacrifice your child? Can you imagine for a moment 
Can you feel that? What kind of emotions would come to play? In the movie that was up, was up for the Oscars last year, American Sniper, Bradley Cooper uh, portrays uh, Chris Kyle, who was the most decorated sniper in U.S. military history. And there's a scene in uh, American Sniper where Chris Kyle has in his, uh, in his lens this Iraqi kid that is picking up a rocket launcher. And Chris Kyle has the ethical dilemma, what's he going to do? Because Chris Kyle is on top of a building, and it's his job to protect the American soldiers. And these American soldiers are nearby, and this Iraqi child picks up the rocket launcher. He's trying to get it on his shoulder, and he's about to shoot it at these American soldiers. And Chris Kyle has this dilemma. So we're going to show this scene, and parents, if you have a young child with you, I ask that you have them just look away. It's only about 15 seconds long, but it kind of gets to the, the emotion. Let's go ahead and watch this. I think that's what Abraham feels. I mean, we have somebody who's going to shoot not even his own son. Can you imagine Abraham's feeling? <sighs> and he's, in, in that scene right there, it looks like uh, Chris Kyle Bradley Cooper is about to throw up. And I, I imagine that's what Abraham felt, his one and only son. So I think this. I want to give you a different perspective on this story. And uh, up until this point, I used to take this sort of a look at chapter 22 as this really straightforward story and not much emotion, but after spending some time in the text, I really think there's emotion and the anguish of Abraham <sighs> that he has to sacrifice his son is actually played out in his actions. So first, I think of this because of his love for Isaac, his one and only son. That Abraham loved his one and only son. Abraham stalled. We see that in the text, and I'm going to show this in a second. But Abraham stalled. He delayed. He was hoping for a miracle. And I think because of this close relationship that he had with Yahweh, that before he bargained with Sodom and Gomorrah, that perhaps if he took enough time, that God would intervene. That Abraham, in terms of stalling, would give God enough time to intervene and provide a miracle. I want to show some examples of that. You have it in your notes. First, in chapter 3, uh, verse, or excuse me, verse 3, uh, 3a, it says here, The next morning Abraham got up early, he saddled his donkey, and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. It's interesting, God doesn't say to Abraham, bring, you know, bring uh, the two attendants, bring the donkey with, with Isaac. He doesn't say that. Now, we can safely assume that's what you normally do on a trip. You bring a couple of attendants. But I believe this, is that the more you have in your traveling party, the longer it's going to take, especially an animal. You have to feed it. You, you have to provide water for it. And I think this takes a little longer in the trip. And notice the wording. Notice the wording in verse 3. It says that Abraham brought along his two attendants and the donkey, and what? And also Isaac too. Isaac's the focus. 
You know, he's the focus, but it's like, oh, oh, by the way, Isaac as well. And I think that in here we see that, that Abraham is stalling, he's delaying, he's hoping for a miracle. This is especially more clear in the second half of verse 3. Then he chopped wood for a fire, for a burnt offering, and set out for the place God had told him about. Why is Abraham chopping wood? He's over 100 years old. He's got two attendants. I'm assuming great shape. They're used to manual labor. He's got a son Isaac right there. What's Abraham doing chopping wood? I think he's stalling. And I, I don't think it's, it's disobedience. I think he's just waiting on for God, please God, in some way. And I think this is the anguish. I think this is the love and the emotion that he has for his son Isaac, that in some way God is going to provide some kind of miracle. So I'm going to grab the axe and I'm just going to chop wood. And it's going to take a lot longer. He chops the wood. Also, another fact too, there's wood on Moriah. Abraham would have known that. We find out later that this ram is caught in a thicket. There are, there's wood on this mountain. Why chop the wood right now? Well, then you have to carry it. And in carrying it, it's going to take longer to get to the mountain. I think because of his love and the anguish and the heart-wrenching emotion that Abraham has for his son, the, feel, the, the thought of actually sacrificing his son, he stalls. Maybe God will provide a miracle in some way. Maybe God will do something. And I think a lot of us know what that's like as a parent, that when, when our kids are in a position where they're vulnerable, is that um, uh, perhaps we want to delay in some way. I remember um, our son Alex when he was young. He actually, even to this day, he still hates Dennis. But uh, when he was young, he absolutely hated Dennis. And he has this gag reflex. And, and we bring him to the dentist for checkups. And, and uh, one time he had a couple cavities. And we knew, based on prior experience, that this was something that actually absolutely brought terror to him. You could see it in Alex's eyes, even to have a checkup. This time we have to bring him in for cavities, and it's like we delay enough, but at some point we have to bring him in, otherwise it's going to get worse. And we bring him in to the dentist, and Alex is sitting in the chair, and his eyes are so wide, you can see the terror in his eyes. And we had one of these old school dentists, you know, not exactly the best bedside manners. And pretty soon uh, he's getting things ready, about to give him a shot of Novocaine, and Alex just screams. And then the dentist looks at me, looks at uh, me and Janiel, and Janiel's crying, and he's like, get out of here. <laughs> and we leave, and Janiel is just crying worse. And, and we know what that's like as, as parents. I mean, you want to delay the inevitable as long as possible. Any kind of pain, any kind of thing that will affect our kids, we want to delay as possible if we can, if it's in our own power, because we love our, our kids. And I think that's true of Abraham in terms of his love for Isaac. Now let's jump in at verses 4 through 6, and this is even more telling as well. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. Now notice the emotional distance, because I think Abraham begins to realize he's running out of time. What does he say? The boy. First time he says it. He doesn't say my son. And the Hebrew son is cherished one, valued one. The boy 
boy in Hebrew is more objective. It's, he's emo- I think he's emotionally distanced himself from what's about to happen. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them walked together. My question right here, I mean, you see this. If there's any time you need attendance in a donkey, it's going up the mountain, Right? They're going up the mountain. This is a hundred something, you know, Abraham is over a hundred years old. And he's bringing his son Isaac and they're carrying wood. If there's any time you need two attendants and a donkey, this is the time. And he tells them, no, no, stay back. You know, stay back. We're going to go up the mountain ourselves. We're going to go up the mountain ourselves. Why? Trying to give God more time. Perhaps God will intervene in a powerful way. Maybe God will do something. Now, as we reflect on this, this story, uh, finally, time has run out. Abraham cannot delay any longer. We pick it up in verse 9. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go uh, in Moriah, Abraham built an, off, an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. Now, when we come to this part of the story, faith, true faith, faith that God knows best, faith to follow God in what he wants to do in our lives is messy. It's unreasonable at times. And it's hard. Like Abraham, God will test our faith. Not to play games with us, not to mess up our lives, but to actually make us better. To shape us and form us in the kind of people that he wants us to be. And difficult times shape and form people like nothing else. My grandparents grew up in the Great Depression in World War II. And oftentimes when I was a little boy, they would tell me stories about those years. Almost with like a tinge of nostalgia. They would talk about those, those hard years and also how that developed them in their character, that they were people that were very frugal with their money, and they loved and valued family. My grandparents had eight children and, and 40 grandchildren, living in a, in a house, a small house in South Minneapolis. Somehow they made it all work for all our, our cousins. We felt so treasured by our grandparents. But they valued family because of those hard years in the Great Depression, World War II, and also something that I saw my grandparents, and they talked about too, is that during, during those years in the Great Depression, World War II, is that you had to work hard. You had to work hard. And that was an important ethic for them. So sometimes we come to circumstances like Abraham, moments in our lives where our faith is stretched to the breaking point, but it doesn't break. Because God wants to bring about something in my life, in your life, that isn't there. Something in, in our lives that will help us be a better follower of God. Something in our lives that will help us be a better person. Now, I wish I could tell you that it's, those things happen in the easy and convenient and comfortable modes of life, but oftentimes I find that's not true. I kind of reflect on my own life, and, and I think about my, my own uh, values. And one of the values I've, I've had for some time is a value to help people in need. And that was a value that was not instilled in me by my family. It wasn't really lived out for me in in my family. My family was wonderfully 
a wonderful Christian family, went to church, etc. Even, even my church really didn't talk about helping those who were in need. But somewhere around in my college years, I began to, um, God began to inculcate this value of loving and helping others who are in need. And there's actually an event in my life that really helped kind of stamp that as an important value for me. As Minnesotans, we love to talk about blizzards, okay? And the winter that we're experiencing right now, if you're a true Minnesotan, this is not a true winter. But when it comes to blizzards, we love talking about blizzards, especially the blizzard in Halloween of 1991. How many of you were there? Yeah, we can tell you where we were and what was going on. It was like, you know, when JFK was, was assassinated. I mean, blizzards are like that sort of level for us. They're huge. Anyways, in uh, Halloween 1991, I was working at a grocery store. I was a junior in college. And um, not many customers were coming in, obviously, because of the snow. The snow was just coming down so heavily. And uh, there's just a handful of employees because so many people were calling and that it was, it was too hard to get into the store. So finally, my supervisor told me, he said, Craig, you can go home, okay? And I just left. He didn't tell me anything about Blizzard. He didn't tell me anything. Like, all the snow was out there, and it was very dangerous. I just hopped in my Mazda 323 and took, took the side roads and made my way to Highway 494, but it was very apparent that I, wasn't, well, I was not going to go anywhere. A Mazda 323 is not built for a blizzard. And I didn't have snow tires to begin with. But anyways, I got on 494, and I was stuck right in the middle of the highway. I hopped out of my car, and I looked around, and it was absolutely eerie. There were no cars moving on the highway. It was dark. And it seemed like the worst of the storm was beginning to kick in because all this snow began to envelope me. And this wind just cut through my, my jacket because I had a fall, a fall uh, windbreaker on. I didn't have a, a, a winter coat. I had no gloves, no hat. And I looked around, and all the snow was coming down and the dark and just seeing the lights by the bridge. And it was... Besides the wind, absolute silence. Hopped back in my car and kept it running to keep myself warm. And 15 minutes went by. And I'm wondering what in the world, who, who, who's going to help me? Who is going to come to help me? Because I was too far away from the grocery store. Uh, this is pre-cell phone days. Uh, I'm sitting in this, this car and trying to stay warm. And I'm wondering who, who's going to come? 20 minutes go by and begin to think about stories of people who died in their car during snowstorms, in a ditch or stuck in a road somewhere. And I tried to dismiss, dismiss that, those stories, and, you know, 20 minutes went by, and then and pretty soon 25 minutes w- went by. And I was thinking, maybe I could make a run for a gas station, but I wasn't quite sure where a gas station was nearby, and I wasn't quite sure if I could make it. All I had this, was this fall uh, breaker on, and I had nothing else. No boots, no gloves, no hat. And I thought, there's no way I'll make it. And pretty soon, the dread hit me. I'm going to run out of gas. I'm going to have no heat at all pretty soon. And then all of a sudden, I'm looking into my rearview mirror. I still remember this. These lights start coming down the road. It's a vehicle. It's almost like lights from heaven. And as, a, as the vehicle became closer and closer, I realized this wasn't just an ordinary car. This was a truck. And this truck was carving through the snow, kind of like a hot knife through butter. Not really. I, I've always wanted to say that. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but this truck is coming, 
and it's, it's very obvious it's got a four-wheel drive because he's just flying down. And then I jump out of my car, and I'm waving my arms, and he stops. He rolls his windows down, and he yells through his window, you need a ride. And I said, yes, yes, I need a ride. Went over to my car, turned it off, closed the door, hopped in his truck, and like, like several people I found out later that this happened, left my car right in the middle of the highway. There were so many cars that were stranded during that storm. Anyways, hopped in his truck, and I just looked over at the sky. And uh, being a selfish, uh, you know, 20-year-old, these kind of thoughts don't automatically come into your mind, but I think God put this in my mind. I was thinking, you know, this guy has places to go. Probably has a family waiting for him, wondering where he is. Probably tired after a long day at work. And yet, he took the time to stop and give me a ride. Not only that, he drove me to the city that I lived, and he didn't live in that city took time out of his schedule. And as he dropped me off, I said, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And sometimes we experience those kind of events. And that event, God used for me to really develop this value to help those in need. And not only that experience, but also other experiences. Sometimes it's in those harrowing events, those events that push us to the breaking point, but we don't break that God instills and shapes and forms us in a way that nothing else can do. And this doesn't just happen in our individual lives. Also, God uses difficult circumstances, adverse uh, challenges in our life, harrowing events, to bring us closer together. You ask any family that is unified, that they have a strong bond, and typically you're going to hear stories about tragedy and crises that this family went through that helped bring them together. Waiting in the uh, ER, waiting for perhaps a family member and hearing the news. Or maybe helping a, a, a son through a painful divorce. Or maybe a family that walked alongside mom as she was battling alcoholism and then eventually into a treatment center. These kind of events draw us together. They draw us together um, with others and in our families. And we see this in Abraham's story in terms of not so much the family thing, but also the, the fact that God shapes him and strengthens his faith in a way that nothing else perhaps could bring about. So perhaps from our perspective, it seems unreasonable. But maybe for what God sees in Abraham and what, God, what Abraham really needs, this is actually what he needs. Another reflection as we think about the story is that where God guides, God provides. Where God guides, God provides. Despite his fear and anguish, Abraham kept believing in his delay in his stall, stalling that God would bring about something. Notice in verse 5, he says, we will come back. Not I, we. He believes that God is going to provide in, a, in an amazing way. And then we pick it up in verses 10 through 13. It says this, And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, Here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its thorn, horns in a thicket. God provides. 
where God guides, God provides. And that might be a phrase that you need to repeat to yourself today and this week as you find yourself in the midst of a challenging time is that where God guides, God provides. And not only that, as we reflect on this story, is that when we trust God and our faith is stretched, he will bless us. And I'm not talking about perhaps just material ways, but actually in a variety of ways, he will bless us. Verse 17 through 18, we see this. I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. So maybe as you stand in the midst of something very hard, very difficult, maybe for you it's simply to endure, to trust God, to know that he has your best interests in mind. And as you do, that he will bless you. I love this verse. It's in your teaching notes. Also on the slide from Psalm 67, verses 6 through 7. God, our God, will richly bless us. Yes, God will bless us and, the, and people all over the world will fear him. And for us, if we trust God in the midst of it, he will bless us. If we trust God in the midst of circumstances that are hard, in the midst of the messiness of life, God will bless you. Let me pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much for this story, and I pray that as we walk away, that you would lead and guide us. I don't assume for a moment to know the pain and torment and and the emotion of everybody in this community, but you do, God. So I pray that we experience your presence evermore in the midst of struggle, in the midst of challenge, and to know where God guides, God provides. Amen.